The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome, everyone, to the Long Ball Legacies Podcast. My name is Daniel Port. I'm your host every single week here on Fridays on the Pitcherlist Podcast Network. Here we will rank every single week a different player throughout baseball history, and we will talk about what they mean to the game, to the story that it tells, and what it really means to the mythology of America and how we view the sport through today's lens. Thank you for joining me. I'm really excited about today's episode. We have had a lot of fun diving back into history recently, looking at a couple of Negro League players recently, and looking at baseball in the 1940s and 1950s. But today, we're actually going to jump a little forward in time. We're going to come and look at a more modern player today in Scott Rowland. Now, as we know, Scott Rowland recently just got elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame, and it's been a little controversial to some, and I want to dive into his career and talk about whether or not we think Scott Rowland is Hall of Fame worthy. Spoiler, I do think so. And then also look at who he was as a player, what his career means, and also what it means moving forward for other third basemen and other folks who might be Hall of Fame worthy as well. So uh, I say, why wait? Let's just dive straight into today's episode here. I think it's their baseball as we know it or understand it was supposedly invented by Abner Doubleday in 1839. It's a little more complicated than that, but roll with me here. That's just shy of 200 years of baseball history. 200 years of baseball history. And I'm going to tell you here and now that I don't think we really understand third base. There are some that treat it like a grueling physical position that is second only to shortstop and center field in terms of difficulty, while requiring an entirely different type of athletic profile. Others treat it like it's just the mirror image of first base, just on the other side of the diamond. And as a former third baseman myself, I tend to align myself with the former opinion. You play closer to the batter than most positions, and when it's hit to you, it's hit harder, faster, at more complex angles and sightlines than other positions. It actually really is somewhat more difficult in some ways because the batter's back is to you. There's a whole lot of different things that make third base a really complicated and complex position to play. Yes, shortstops have to have incredible flexibility and foot speed and range and glove ability to play that position, and all those things actually 
of course, will help third baseman. But it's more quick twitch reactions and being willing to put your body in front of the ball and sometimes even take it into your body in a way that other positions don't really require to the same degree. It's just a very unique and difficult position. And I might be able to convince you that third base is different defensively than first base. What's weird is when you look at Hall of Fame arguments or the way we look at players' careers, everyone seemingly expects third baseman to hit like a first baseman, even if they recognize that defensively they're not the same. And when you consider how different the builds for third baseman are, we talk about that quick twitch. We talk about some of the different things that third baseman have to do than first baseman and how much they have to work on their defense because of it feels a bit unfair, frankly, between you and me. And if you look at the career numbers for a lot of the third baseman greats throughout history, it is a weird standard to hold them to. And a lot of this helps make sense to me as to why there are 26 first basemen in the Hall of Fame and just 17 third basemen. It's been a running joke in the Hall of Fame elections for a long time now, at least for as long as I can remember, that the easiest way to for a third baseman to get into the Hall of Fame was to change positions. Um, we just really reluctant to elect third basemen to the Hall of Fame. So that's why I was really excited to see Scott Rowland get in because there are a lot of players of his quality and caliber that have happened uh, and played throughout history and many who we might see come up after him that this might open the door for. So I'm very excited to see Scott Rowland get into the Hall of Fame. And I think we're starting to see the way that we view third baseman changing. We're starting to see more and more us as analysts digging into uh, the defensive numbers at third base and highly evaluating them or weighing them more when we do that evaluation and starting to be more reasonable about the offensive numbers that we're looking for at third base and view it as its own unique sort of position. We'll uh, dig into it throughout the episode, but seeing an elite defensive third baseman with an above average bat get elected in the Hall of Fame seems like an indicator that we might be starting to properly evaluate the position and understand its unique requirements and demands. It could be a sign that we might see the floodgates open up for an entire generation of upcoming third basemen. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty about Scott Rowland and his career-slash-story, I want to gush about Scott Rowland's defense here for a second, because that is his calling card. That's his hallmark. And Rowland was a defensive marvel at third base. Only really Adrian Beltre contributed more defensive war at third base, and... Honestly, do yourself a favor. Pause the podcast for a minute or put it on the background, but go to YouTube and search Scott Rowland defense. You won't be sorry. It's well worth your time. It's like watching good ballet or well, maybe more like modern dance as it's a little less fluid sometimes, but every movement is efficient. Every step has a purpose and is efficient and quick and under control it's a genuine joy to watch Scott Rowland play defense it's a great way to get an idea of the athleticism and the skill set required to be an elite defensive third baseman and the thing that caught my eye the most was how he prepares to field a grounder so if you watch closely where you can see it on some of the replays and highlights usually if it's an especially if the sight line like on a replay is from home plate out to the third baseman you can usually see it pretty well what he does is he gets in his crouch like a normal third baseman and right before the batter swings he almost like hops 
an inch off the ground and brings his feet from being more spread out to closer to shoulder width. And this allows him to quickly move in any direction, to either side, forward, backwards, without hesitation, much quicker and with much more efficient movements. And this is the thing about third base. For the most part, you have a step or two in either direction and maybe a dive to get up to a ball or it's by you. You that's It's that fast. And sometimes you're even diving out of a standstill. You don't, you don't actually get to take a step. That's how fast things happen for you over there at third base. And this little hop is how you're prepared to break in any direction with power and speed. And Roland was a freaking master at it. As a side anecdote, just to diverge here for a second, I play tennis, and in tennis, this move is called a split step. And honestly, if you time your split step correctly, like yeah, 50% of the time as an amateur player, you're doing all right at the amateur level. Roland, if you watch, was timing it perfectly almost every time, which is crazy. It's genuinely incredible of the kind of timing because if you time it, you can make that break in any direction and get to almost any ball if you time it correctly. And he nailed it almost every single time. It's genuinely incredible to see someone pull that off. It's what makes him one of the best, if not the best defender of his generation at third base. It's really incredible. It's also really something you can only pull off consistently by making it a mentality like you can't just sometimes and we talk about this in tennis as well that you can be good at making your split steps unconsciously it's not true you have to focus you have to concentrate if you want to hit that every single time it has to be something that you make a deliberate act on your part and it's the same thing at third base you can only pull off those reactions by dedicating yourself to it and then on every pitch, being ready and being focused and being mentally ready for that movement. And to practice that move constantly, just that little split step, constantly. And Roland, by every account, was laser-focused his entire career being the best defensive third baseman in the league. And it shows, and it ends up being what gets him into the Hall of Fame. It's really fun to watch, and like I said, just take a few minutes and watch some Scott Rowland defensive highlights. They're really incredible. But okay, okay, enough gushing uh, about third base defense. It's a, a kink of mine, I would say. I love it so much, uh, but I'm also a giant nerd, so what else is new? Anyways, let's talk about Rowland's career from a big picture perspective. He played for 17 seasons for four different teams. He accumulated 70.1 war, which is 69th amongst position players and 10th all-time amongst third basemen. His 316 home runs is 16th all-time amongst third basemen. His 517 doubles was 6th amongst those who played the hot corner. His 1,287 RBIs ranks 14th, just ahead of recent Hall of Fame inductee Edgar Martinez and ahead of Hall of Famer, other Hall of Famers Wade Boggs. His 1,211 runs scored is 16th all-time, which is ahead of Hall of Famer Ron Santo, for instance, who, as we've already ranked 15th on the list as of this recording. He hit 281 for his career with an 855 OPS, which is good for a career 122 OPS+. plus. When you pair that with a Rookie of the Year award, a Silver Slugger, 7 All-Star appearances, and 8 Gold Gloves, which is the 4th most by a 3rd baseman ever, it all adds up to a pretty impressive career. You know, more on that in a moment, 
But before we jump into our usual year-to-year breakdown, let's actually take our first break here before we get into it all. Welcome back. So, Scott Rowland was born in 1975. He hailed from Evansville, Indiana, and starred as a multi-sport athlete throughout high school, including baseball, tennis, remember that split step, and basketball, winning Indiana's Mr. Baseball Award and being honored as an all-star in basketball. In fact, according to Jay Jaffe, uh, and Jay Jaffe's write-up on Rowland's Hall of Fame induction, was a huge source for this episode, so I want to give credit to to Mr. Jaffe. Roland had originally been recruited for and had committed to playing basketball for Georgia before fate intervened as Roland was selected in the second round of the 1993 draft by the Phillies and given a $250,000 signing bonus. That same year, he made his debut in rookie ball, hitting 313 with five doubles and a 429 OBP and an 804 OPS across 25 games. He spends all of 1994 in A-ball at 19 years old playing in 138 games, hitting 14 home runs, 34 doubles, and 5 triples to go along with a 294 average, a 363 OBP, and an 825 OPS, all of which earns him the 91st spot in Baseball America's Top 100 Prospects. Now, moving into 1995, he plays at high A and double A, hitting 290 with a 383 OBP and an 861 OPS with 13 home runs and 16 doubles across 86 games. He starts the 1996 season as the 27th prospect in Baseball America's rankings back at double A, but that didn't last long as he got promoted pretty quickly to triple A. And after hitting 324 with 13 home runs and a 931 OPS, Across 106 games, the 21-year-old Roland gets his first call-up to the big leagues. He plays in 37 games, hitting four home runs across 146 plate appearances, along with seven doubles, a 254 average, and a 722 OPS. Now, a reoccurring theme is going to be injuries plaguing Roland his whole career, and even his first taste of the majors was no exception, as his season would end at this point thanks to an errant pitch from Steve Traxel that fractured the ulna in Scott Rowland's right arm. Now, going to the 1997, technically he was still a rookie. Uh, He had fallen just shy of losing his rookie eligibility, which saw him move into the 13th place on Baseball America's list, and he made good on the new ranking by having a fantastic rookie season. Across 156 games, Rowland hits 283 with a 377 OBP, and an 846 OPS, which was good for a 121 OPS plus. He hit 21 home runs and 35 doubles, along with 92 RBIs and 93 runs scored. Roland was worth 4.4 war and ran away with the Rookie of the Year voting that year, becoming the first Philly since Dick Allen to win the award. And to give you the idea of just how good he already was at defense, he led all third basemen and putouts that year and was 7th in Fangraph's defensive metric, which is the defensive component they use for war, and finished fourth amongst all third basemen in war overall. The Phillies weren't very good that year, winning just 68 games, but Roland was a bright spot for the team and gave them a reason for hope moving forward. That very next spring, the Phillies signed Roland to a new four-year deal, marking him as a long-term piece for the rebuilding squad. Now, Roland responds with an elite sophomore season, hitting 290 with a 391 OBP and a 920 OPS, which was good for a 139 OPS+. Plus. Roland smashed 31 home runs, 45 doubles, driving in 110 RBIs and scoring 120 runs. He even stole 14 bases that year and walked 13.1% of the time. 
Somehow, despite finishing 6th in war amongst position players in the National League and 5th amongst third basemen in Fangraph's defense and winning his first gold glove, he finishes 20th in MVP voting. It's highly likely Philly's 75-win season had some impact on that, even if it shouldn't have, and things really were looking as bright as could be for Roland at this point. Unfortunately, though, 1999 would be a rougher year for Roland. He got off to a great start, hitting 287 with 7 home runs in 22 games across March and April, but he fell into a deep slump for nearly all of May and June, hitting just 242 and 225 respectively. He recovered, though, in July, having a fantastic month, hitting 315 with 11 home runs in the month before nagging back injury hounded him throughout August, limiting him to just one home run in the month before being diagnosed with a lower back strain that ended his season. Overall, he played 112 games, hitting 26 home runs, 28 doubles, 77 RBIs with 74 runs scored, with a 268 average and an 893 OPS. If that's a rough season, I'll take it, because he was worth 4.7 war that year, which is an excellent number. That's an all-star level of play. If he could have stayed healthy all season, he was on pace for a 6.8 war season, even with that two, with a poor two-month stretch, largely because he took his defense to a whole nother level. Despite missing that many games, he finished second amongst third basemen in Fangraph's defense. So that just tells you just how good he was playing defensively at third base at that time. Unfortunately, the Phillies continued to struggle, winning just 77 games in the season. And the new millennium did not get off to a healthier start for Roland, as an ankle injury limited him to playing just 129 games that year. And despite this, he still hits 26 home runs with 32 doubles, 89 RBIs, and 88 runs scored while maintaining a 298 average with a 370 OBP and a 920 OPS. Overall, still pretty darn good in spite of the injury. He was still worth 4.5 war that year, and his defense was excellent, as evidenced by his sixth-place ranking by Fangraph's defense. The Phillies still won under 80 games, unfortunately, and this was starting to eat at Roland, and certainly was a sticking point for new incoming manager Larry Boa, who made it pretty clear once he came into town in 2001 who he felt was to blame for their struggles, namely Scott Rowland. This is frankly pretty weird on his part because Rowland was fantastic in 2001, hitting 289 with a 379 OBP and an 879 OPS, which was good for a 128 OPS plus. He hit 25 home runs with 39 doubles, 107 RBIs, and 97 uh, runs scored. He wins his third gold glove, gets MVP votes on the year while finishing with 5.6 war on the year and once again finishing sixth in Fangraph's defense. Despite this excellent, one might even say, star-level season, Boa would publicly call him out in the press if they lost the season, which rightfully rubbed Roland the, the wrong way. And heck, if you really want to get into it, assistant to the GM, Dallas Green, publicly claimed in a radio interview that, and I quote, Scotty is satisfied with being a player. He's not a great player. In his mind, he probably thinks he's doing okay, but the fans in Philadelphia know otherwise. I think he can be greater, but his personality won't let him. Which is insane. Could you imagine an executive saying that about a player these days? There, there'd be riots. There, there's, just, there's no way. I, I, like, I can't even fathom someone talking about one of their players like that. That's just crazy to me. Obviously, rightfully, Roland was furious, and I cannot blame him in any way. I would have lost my mind if someone talked to me publicly like that. And 
Roland claims here that he doesn't feel welcome there anymore. And when you add in the fact that Roland felt like the Phillies weren't that committed to winning, it all starts to add up. He had a point, by the way. In 1997, Roland didn't have a single teammate hitter worth more than two war. In 1998, the Phillies had Bobby Abreu at 6.4 war, but the only other hitters with more than two war were Doug Glanville at 2.4 and Kevin Sefik at 2.1. That's it. Things got somewhat better in 1999 as they had three players over four war and two more over two war as far as hitters went, but that was it. How about 2000? Just three hitters over two war, including Roland. So... He may have had a point, because either the Phillies front office was incompetent, or they just weren't trying very hard, because that's not a lot of good players to have in your lineup there. So again, Roland may have had a, a reason to be upset with them on that front as well. And then you add in the comments they're making, and uh, that makes for a disgruntled employee, is what I will say. And coming into spring training of 2002, he was not shy about voicing it. In retaliation, Boa was actually caught on camera screaming at general manager Ed Wade to trade Scott Rowland. And while this never made the air, it ended up being leaked. It was a huge, very embarrassing moment for all involved. And again, we're not shocked that Rowland wanted out at this point, honestly. The trade doesn't materialize right away, but in retrospect, obviously at this point, the writing was on the wall. In total, Roland plays in 100 games for the Phillies in 2002, and he's solid if unspectacular, hitting 259 with 17 home runs and 21 doubles with a 358 OBP and 830 OPS, good for a 123 OPS+. Plus. He also managed 66 RBIs and 52 runs scored while making the All-Star game, which apparently he was booed at. The media certainly did Roland no favors throughout this situation. If you read a lot of the reports and a lot of things from the time period, it's... A lot of the blame is laid at Roland's feet, and he gets painted with the brush of clubhouse troublemaker. He's even called a clubhouse cancer at one point, I believe, in his career. It's just something that really was unfairly blamed on him, and we'll talk about that later. But I, I just don't see it. I don't see how a team treats a player this way and somehow also ends up making sure that he gets the blame for the falling out. Just crazy to me. Now, despite having accumulated 3.6 war for the Phillies at that point, that's in 100 games for the record, he was unceremoniously traded to the Cardinals on July 29th. For the record, Bobby Abreu and Pat Burrow were the only hitters to surpass Rollins' 3.6 war in Philadelphia that season, and they played 57 more games than he did in Philly. So that, again, just tells you everything you need to know about how good the team was. Only one pitcher, by the way, Randy Wolf, did as well that season, so... I think they kind of proved Roland's point, actually. Anyways, Roland arrives in St. Louis and has new life breathed into him. He goes on an absolute tear. Over the final 55 games of the season, Roland hits 278 with a 354 OBP and a 915 OPS. He hits 14 home runs, 8 doubles, and 4 triples, racking up 44 RBIs and 37 runs while accumulating 2.8 more war. On the year, he hit 266 with an 860 OPS with 31 home runs, 29 doubles, 110 RBIs, and 89 runs scored. He's worth 6.4 war that year. The Cardinals won 91 games that year in the, and win the NL Central in a large part thanks to Roland's contributions. 
Now, for the record, Philly won just 81 games and finished third in the East. But for the first time, Roland is heading to the playoffs. And in the first two games of the NLDS against Arizona, he is fantastic hitting. 429 with a 1.357 OPS. He has a home run and two RBIs. Unfortunately, he injures his shoulder in a collision with Alex Cintron in game two and suffered sprains in four regions of his shoulder and collarbone, including, and I quote, a severe hyperextension of the three ligaments supporting his clavicle, which sounds awful. I don't quite know what that is, but all of it sounds pretty terrible, and that ends his season. The Cardinals win the series, but end up losing to the Giants in the NLDS that year. Thankfully, Roland gets the entire offseason to get healthy, and he has a fantastic season for the Cardinals. It's 286 with 28 home runs and 49 doubles, with 104 RBIs and 89 I'm sorry, and 98 runs scored to go along with a 382 OBP and a 910 OPS, which was good for a 138 OPS plus while playing in 154 games. He goes to his second All-Star game in a row and wins his fourth Gold Glove. Unfortunately, while the Cardinals win 85 games, they finish third in the hotly contested NL Central and miss the playoffs that year. Now, the Cardinals would not stay down long, though, as they won 105 games in 2004, and Roland was a huge reason why. In what was likely a career year, Roland played in 142 games at 314 with a 409 OBP and a 1.007 OPS which is good for a 158 OPS+. plus. He had 34 home runs with 32 doubles to go along with 124 RBI and 109 runs scored. He goes to his third straight All-Star game and wins his fifth gold glove while finishing fourth in MVP voting. Roland finished third in war that year in the NL with 9.6 war, right behind Adrian Beltre and MVP winner Barry Bonds, who put up a crazy 1.422 OPS that season with 10.6 war. That's right. He was award blocked, rightfully so, by the highest single season OPS since Josh Gibson's 1.427 OPS in 1943. That's just bad timing on Roland's part. Roland was excellent on defense as well, finishing second amongst third baseman in Fangraph's defense just behind Adrian Beltre, who also played in 14 more games than Roland that season. That's how good Roland's defense was. The Cardinals go to the playoffs, and in the NLDS, he struggles going hitless in four games against the Dodgers, but the Cards prevail anyways, which sets the stage for Roland to shine in an NLCS slugfest against the powerhouse Houston Astros. In seven games, Roland has nine hits, including three home runs and two doubles, to go along with six RBIs and six runs scored. One of those home runs came in the form of a two-run shot in the sixth inning of Game 7 off of Roger Clemens to put the Cardinals up by two. This home run would end up being the runs that put the Cardinals into the World Series that year. For that home run alone, Roland will always mean something different to Cardinals fans, as he should. Now, they go to the World Series, and Roland struggles in the World Series, as do most of the Cardinals, as they lose to Boston in four games. Unfortunately, he goes hitless over those four games, and there are some people who remember that more than they do the NLCS, but they have to remember the Cardinals would have never made the series if it weren't for Roland and his name gets to live on in Cardinals lore for it. Now, unfortunately, in 2005, the injury bug would come once again for Roland, as he tears his left labrum on May 10th, colliding with Hesop Choi, and plays in just 56 games that year. He had initially tried to come back from the injury, but it was clear after just a month or so, roughly, that he needed surgery. He wasn't hitting for any power, he was struggling, and it was very clear he needed to get it fixed. 
He was actually named an all-star that year despite hitting just five home runs with the 235 average that year. He wouldn't play in the game because of the injury, obviously, and wouldn't see the field again until 2006 at that point. While the Cardinals make the playoffs in his absence, they do not end up returning to the World Series. The labor of injury, thankfully, doesn't carry over into 2006 as Roland plays in 142 games and is excellent, hitting 296 with an 887 OPS, which is good for a 126 OPS plus, while hitting 22 home runs with 48 doubles, 95 RBI, and 94 runs. Roland's defense was great once again, and he wins his seventh gold glove and is once again named to the All-Star game. He's worth 5.9 war, which leads all third basemen, and this was a great season. It wasn't all good feelings, though, as rumors began to surface that Roland was struggling with shoulder fatigue towards the end of the season. And you have to wonder if between the shoulder injury and all those torn ligaments and labrum injury from the year before, we're starting to catch up with him. Just You can see in the dip in power numbers and some of the late season numbers, it feels like the telltale signs of a shoulder injury catching up to him there. The Cardinals make the playoffs and Tony La Russa was the Cardinals manager at the time even actually benches Roland a few times because of that shoulder fatigue and some of his struggles. And according to articles at the time, rumors are also swirling that LaRusa felt that Roland wasn't really being forthcoming about his injury. And at this point in the season, they actually weren't even on speaking terms. Some trouble starting to brew in the Cardinals dugout. Roland struggles in the NLDS and NLCS, managing just six hits in 10 games. But it's in the World Series that year that Roland really cements his legacy as a Cardinal great. Across the five games against Detroit, Roland hits 421 with eight hits, including a home run and three doubles with two RBIs and five runs scored. He was actually robbed of a second home run, in fact, by Andy Chavez in Game 7 while driving in the decisive run in Game 5 as well. So, big series, huge series for Roland. These are the kind of World Series heroics that people talk about for years and years and years to come. And while the Cardinals have won a ton of World Series, this one was important as well. And and people remember Roland for how he stepped up in this series. It feels like Roland had fully redeemed himself for his World Series struggles back in 2004 at this point. Now, the division between La Russa and Roland only grew coming into 2007. Overall, Roland struggled, hitting just 265 with a shockingly paltry eight home runs in 112 games. You have to wonder at this point if there are any leftover shoulder issues hampering Roland. If you go and listen to all the episodes of this podcast, I feel like there is a graveyard of players' careers who were great power hitters that suffered a major shoulder injury, and then saw all their power disappear. We saw with Sean Green is a good example, but it has happened over and over and over. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if there were either some shoulder fatigue injuries lingering or if just the injury had the kind of thing that just you don't come back from. It wouldn't surprise me at all. He still played great defense that year, but to me it seemed pretty clear that something was wrong. In August, his season is cut short as he ends up undergoing surgery for burstectomy and scar tissue removal. And by the end of the season, things had gotten frosty enough between Roland and La Russa that Roland requests a trade for the second time in his career. Now, of course, for his part, La Russa, being Tony La Russa, certainly handled this situation diplomatically and professionally. When talking about the injury and Roland's struggles, saying, 
There's absolutely no intent to accommodate Scott, said an unsympathetic LaRussa at that year's winter meetings. If he doesn't like it, he can quit. Again, I, I think sometimes Rowling gets painted as uh, a guy who's trouble in the locker room, but it doesn't seem like his managers really worked with him in that way or seemed to be professional or uh, mature about it, which is their whole role in the situation. It just uh, like it always boggles me because I remember the this time period in baseball and it was really invested in baseball at the time and feeling like all I was ever, what was painted towards me as a fan was that Scott Rowland was a talented but troubled player, that he was this guy that no one got along with and was a coach killer, so to say. And looking back on it historically, it feels like the opposite. That, that Roland, and all in all reports, seem to paint him as an intense guy who held people accountable, who really enforced playing hard and playing the right way and was considered a great leader by a lot of players that he played with. But obviously that seems like that would clash with these two managers specifically knowing their history as well. So I kind of see this whole situation through a new lens now, having gone back through Roland's history here. By spring training, Roland had gone from a cardinal to a bird of a different feather, specifically a Blue Jay, as they do trade him to the Blue Jays. According to then Cardinals general manager John Mosliak, I hope I said that right, I apologize John if I've mispronounced that, who considered Roland a friend, said of the situation, I did not want to trade him, Mosliak said. I like Scott on a personal level and I consider him a friend, but he definitely needed to get out of here for a variety of reasons. And... That quote, especially the uh, variety of reasons, to me that says a lot about how bad the relationship between Roland and LaRusa had become. And sort of makes me go back and think about it and wonder how much of that was Roland and how much of that was LaRusa, so to say. Roland was less than enthused by his destination, um, going to Toronto. And the beginning to Roland's Blue Jay career got off to a rocky start as he suffered a fracture in his right middle finger. During a fielding drill, they actually say he lost the nail on that finger as well, which is awful and since chills up my spine just thinking about. But he missed almost all of April because of the fracture. And he was solid for the Blue Jays that year, but his power continued to no-show as he had just 11 home runs in 115 games. He also had 30 doubles, which is 50 RBIs and 58 runs to go along with a 262 average with a 780 OPS, which is good for a 109 OPS+. While his power was gone, he still played excellent defense, and it's so important that he consistently was able to remain an elite defender throughout his entire career because it buoyed his war numbers for his entire career. It basically made it so his floor was always to be three-war player no matter what because that's how good his defense was. And... Despite the drop in offensive output, he was able to manage to be a 3.4 war player that year. Toronto won 86 games that year, but finished fourth in the AL East despite that. And one has to wonder if all the injuries had sort of finally caught up to Roland, if that was what was causing this big drop-off in his production. 2009 held a lot more promise for the now 34-year-old Scott Roland as he hit 320 with an 847 OPS with six home runs and 26 doubles in the first 76 games of the season, but it didn't really make a dent in the Blue Jays' win total. Now, he had just one more year in his contract at this point, with no real future in Toronto. Roland once again asked to be traded somewhere closer to Indiana. There were some personal considerations, supposedly, that were weighing on him as well, 
And that's one of the reasons he wanted to be closer to home. And Toronto, seeing the chance to start their rebuild, acquiesced and tried to find a, a good fit. And they do. They end up trading him to Cincinnati halfway through the year. And this trade is also fascinating historically because one of the players heading in the other direction uh, at this point was a, was at this point, I should say, a mostly disappointing Edwin Encarnacion who would come to Toronto and would reinvent himself into a perennial all-star. So this is ramifications for multiple players, which is really kind of fascinating. I love trades like that. Now, Roland is solid in 2009 for the Reds, hitting 270 with three home runs and seven doubles with 24 RBIs and 24 runs scored in 40 games, despite actually in his second game he got beamed in the head and the, ends up with a concussion. And the residual effects of the concussion would hound him all season long with post-concussion syndrome actually resulting in an injured list stint at one point in the season. He finishes the year as a whole hitting 305 with 11 home runs, 36 doubles, 67 RBIs, and 76 runs. His defense was stellar, and this this resulted... So I kind of see this whole situation through a new lens now, having gone back through Roland's history here. By spring training, Roland had gone from a cardinal to a bird of a different feather, specifically a Blue Jay, as they do trade him to the Blue Jays. According to then Cardinals general manager John Mosliak, I hope I said that right, I apologize John if I've mispronounced that, who considered Roland a friend, said of the situation, I did not want to trade him, Mosliak said. I like Scott on a personal level and I consider him a friend, but he definitely needed to get out of here for a variety of reasons. And... That quote, especially the uh, variety of reasons, to me that says a lot about how bad the relationship between Roland and LaRusse had become. And sort of makes me go back and think about it and wonder how much of that was Roland and how much of that was LaRusse, so to say. Roland was less than enthused by his destination, um, going to Toronto. And the beginning to Roland's Blue Jay career got off to a rocky start as he suffered a fracture in his right middle finger. During a fielding drill, they actually say he lost the nail on that finger as well, which is awful and since chills up my spine just thinking about. But he missed almost all of April because of the fracture. And he was solid for the Blue Jays that year, but his power continued to no-show as he had just 11 home runs in 115 games. He also had 30 doubles with just 50 RBIs and 58 runs to go along with a 262 average with a 780 OPS, which is good for a 109 OPS+. While his power was gone, he still played excellent defense, and it's so important that he consistently was able to remain an elite defender throughout his entire career because it buoyed his war numbers for his entire career. It basically made it so his floor was always to be a three-war player no matter what because that's how good his defense was. And... Despite the drop in offensive output, he was able to manage to be a 3.4 war player that year. Toronto won 86 games that year, but finished fourth in the AL East despite that. And one has to wonder if all the injuries had sort of finally caught up to Roland, if that was what was causing this big drop off in his production. 2009 held a lot more promise for the now 34-year-old Scott Roland as he hit 320 with an 847 OPS with six home runs and 26 doubles in the first 76 games of the season, but it didn't really make a dent in the Blue Jays' win total. Now, he had just one more year on his contract at this point, and with no real future in Toronto, Roland once again asked to be traded somewhere closer to Indiana. There were some personal considerations, supposedly, that were weighing on him as well, 
And that's one of the reasons he wanted to be closer to home. And Toronto, seeing the chance to start the rebuild, acquiesced and tried to find a, a good fit. And they do. They end up trading him to Cincinnati halfway through the year. And this trade is also fascinating historically because one of the players heading in the other direction uh, at this point was a... Was at this point, I should say, a mostly disappointing Edwin Encarnacion, who would come to Toronto and would reinvent himself into a perennial all-star. So this is ramifications for multiple players, which is really kind of fascinating. I love trades like that. Now, Roland is solid in 2009 for the Reds, hitting 270 with three home runs and seven doubles with 24 RBIs and 24 runs scored in 40 games, despite actually in his second game he got beaned in the head and the, ends up with a concussion. And the residual effects of the concussion would hound him all season long with post-concussion syndrome actually resulting in an injured list stint at one point in the season. He finishes the year as a whole hitting 305 with 11 home runs, 36 doubles, 67 RBIs, and 76 runs. His defense was stellar and this this resulted in him having a 5.2 war season, which is fantastic for a 34-year-old who just hit 11 home runs. That's how good his defense was. Cincinnati didn't quite have enough momentum to make the playoffs that year, winning just 78 games under Dusty Baker that year, but this would turn around in a hurry. 2010 saw Roland continue his career trend as the missing piece a team needed to turn things around as both the Reds and and Roland flourished that year. For his part, Roland hits 285 with an 854 OPS with 20 home runs and 34 doubles to go along with 83 RBIs and 66 runs. He's an all-star at 35 years old and wins his final gold glove while finishing 14th in the NL MVP race. Overall, he's worth 4.1 war that season. The Reds win 91 games in the NL Central, going to the playoffs for the first time since 1995. So it's a whole other fan base that, that Roland gets to be a part of legendary teams and that means a ton of Cincinnati fans who have really struggled for a while in terms of having winning teams and Roland will get to forever be a part of that and that really has to mean something and be something special as well there. Unfortunately they were overmatched by the Phillies when they make it to the playoffs. They did not make it past the division series but for Reds fans like I said this was truly a memorable team uh, and it means something that Roland got to be a part of that. Now, sadly, this is the last healthy and memorable season for Roland. He's an all-star in 2011, uh, but he plays in just over 150 games over the next two seasons, and he's only worth 2.2 war over that time period as protruding discs in his back effectively end his career at the age of 37. Again, father time undefeated, whatever cliche you want to use, injuries just kept adding up, and you have to imagine like you get to something as serious as a protruding disc, and that's more of an accumulation, right? The, like the shoulder to the back, to the labrum to the back, to the lid. Like all those things added up and finally he just couldn't do it anymore. Now, with him retired here in our story, the question remains, was Roland a deserving Hall of Fame caliber player? And I feel like it's a resounding yes. I'll admit I'm a Hall of very good. I'd rather a big Hall than a than a small secluded hall i want more players in the hall of fame so for me it's an easy yes but i i I understand those who who don't feel that way but i i just disagree aside from being one of the premier defensive third baseman of his generation and perhaps one of the best defenders of the hot corner ever when you start looking at his overall numbers i honestly think it's a no-brainer 
He meets the thresholds for the average Hall of Fame third baseman in war, seven-year peak war, Jaws, and war per 162 games. And he was a major piece of two World Series teams and the catalyst for the rebirth of another playoff team here. As I've said before, for me, anytime you get slapped with the best blank of your generation in a meaningful way, you're probably a Hall of Famer. That's Defender or slugger or hitter for average or pure hitter or whatever what best blank of your generation probably should be a hall of famer that's how i feel about that and his career numbers offensively are in the top 20 or better all time for third baseman if you look across most of the major offensive categories and for me when you combine that with his elite defense that pretty much seals the deal as far as I'm concerned. I also think a big part of this is understanding, again, how difficult and unique third base is defensively. We've had no problem putting a player like Ozzie Smith, deservedly, for the record, into the Hall of Fame despite major offensive challenges, even more so than Roland. Smith only had 76.9 war across 19 seasons. And if he's a shoo-in, and again, I definitely think he is, I think you have to include Roland. For me... This is just a, a slam dunk, honestly. And I know some people also talk to the clubhouse issues and things like that. And I, I don't heavily weigh him getting traded so many times, nor really the down years that occurred in and around those trade years. We've all been in jobs working for people we didn't get along with and have had it affect our performance. And athletes have fewer avenues to remove themselves from jobs that aren't ideal or from employees they do not work well with. He was stuck in those situations. So when you talk about him making trade demands or things like that, that's the only avenue he had to remove himself from a bad situation. It's the only option he had. And we tend to paint it universally with a negative brush. And I don't necessarily know it always deserved that in Roland's case. I think we need to keep that in mind. That, and I'm not really going to weigh too many of these clubhouse issues in my evaluation here when we go to rank Roland. And, uh, and again, also to mention, it's also worth noting that LaRusso and Boa, while good managers with great careers, do have something of a reputation for butting heads with players. So it's not like Roland was the lone player to butt heads with them. It's not like when you look at someone like, God forbid, I even hate saying his name, but like someone like Trevor Bauer butting heads with Terry Francona. You're like, listen, it's Terry Francona. That man, I think, has yelled like twice in his entire life publicly in a baseball game so like you can't imagine someone not getting along with terry francona and bauer didn't and that's how you're like that probably seems like that's a bauer problem whereas larusa and bow have had a reputation for for butting heads of players so that has to be factored in there as well especially when you consider the role and seem like i mentioned this before but intense and stern leader i think there's just it makes sense that they all butted heads here now with that out of the way, so we've determined that Roland is a Hall of Famer and deserved to be elected to the Hall of Fame. Again, I think it was a no-brainer. Easy choice. Let's actually real quick take a, a quick break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to rank Scott Roland and then wrap up our episode. Welcome back. Thank you so much. So it's time to figure out where Scott Roland ends up on our big old list of players. Now, real quick, let's give a rundown of where the list sits right now so looking at it our top 15 number one is satchel page number two is josh gibson number three is mickey mantle number four is greg maddox number five is mike trout number six is ichiro number seven is george brett number eight is adrian beltray number nine is clayton kershaw number 10 is edgar martinez 
Number 11 is Sandy Koufax. Number 12 is Tony Gwen. Number 13 is Hank Greenberg. Number 14 is Joey Votto. Number 15 is Ron Santo. Number 20 is David Ortiz. Jose Ramirez is number 25. Number 30 is Freddie Freeman. Number 35 is Jim Cat. Number 40 is Jorge Posada. Number 45 is Matt Williams. Number 50 is Jason Bay. Number 55 is Mike Sweeney. Number 56 is Herb Score. Number 57 is Mark Pryor. And finally, number 58 is James Paxton. Now, the question is obviously, where does Scott Rowland fit on this list? Now, I think we can safely go in the top 25. So we're talking, we'll go above Ryan Sandberg and Bryce Harper. And as you can go down the list, you can probably say the same thing for Robin Yount, for Steve Carlton, David Ortiz. I think he Rowland moves well past those players. And I think the obvious place to start is probably with Ron Santo. And the truth is eerie how comparable their careers are. As we've got Santo here at 15. Santo was also a defensive wizard at third base who also put together a 70 career war career. He played in 2,243 games while Roland played in 2,038 games. Santo had 342 home runs while Roland had 316. Roland had a 281 career average, while Santo had a 277 career average. Both were doubles machines, but Roland really shined here, in particular hitting 517 to Santo's 365. Roland had a career 122 OPS plus, while Santo had a 125 career OPS plus. Roland had a 1,287 RBIs in his career. Santo had 1,331. Santo put together 18 defensive war while Roland accumulated 21.2. It's really though by Fangraph's defensive metric that Roland blows by him at 180.3 total defense compared to 69.5. But looking at this, they're practically identical. This is the Spider-Man meme with both of them pointing at each other here. And it's really hard to figure out who goes ahead of who in this situation. In the long run though, I think Roland goes ahead of Santo. He was a better defender. He has more doubles with nearly every other number being identical. Add in that Roland had that epic 2006 World Series, went to another one in 2004, had that NLCS success to it as well. Santo never actually even played in the postseason. So I think that helps Roland bump him up there. And now, of course, also one of the reasons Santo ended up so high in these rankings was because of what he meant to the Cubs. Because he played for the Cubs his entire career. And that counts for something, too. And that, like I said, this makes me go back and forth. And I really try to weigh those things, what you mean to a team and your legacy a little more than a lot of people do. Because it means something to me, too. And I think it means something telling the story of baseball. And that's really what this list is about. Ranking how these players and how much they tell the story of baseball. And so I I really do try to include that and think about that. But I think despite that... Roland still goes ahead of him here just because he was just that good of a defender. Uh, again, someone who could be labeled with the best of a generation tag in, in terms of his def- defense at third base. I think Roland goes ahead of him. Now, with that in mind, here's the question. Does he go ahead of Joey Votto, who is the next player at number 14? And this is tough, too. Votto has already hit 342 home runs, and if he can play a few more years... He has a pretty good shot at getting to 400 home runs. He has a better 299 career average. But again, if he plays a couple more years, maybe that comes down more into the same range as Roland. And they're similar. They hit both are players who hit a ton of doubles. Votto has a little bit better average and home runs. But 
there's still kind of that same similar mold. But we'll also likely see Votto, given that he gets some health over the next couple years, should surpass Roland in war as well. So have more war, more far more home runs, better average. He's about 20 points better in OPS plus as well, which is not insignificant at all. That means he was 20% better hitter over his career in OPS than Roland was. Now Roland was obviously a much better defender and in a much harder position. So obviously that gets weighed pretty heavily here. And I'm not necessarily sure how much weight to give it, but it obviously matters. And Roland has more playoff appearances and success in the playoffs, as we mentioned before. But then again, on the other hand, Votto has an MVP to his name. And probably should have won a few more, if you remember from the Votto episode that we did a little bit back. Really probably should have won at least one more, if not two more. It's hard to say, take the guy who really didn't get even a ton of MVP votes throughout his career to compare him to the guy who's won one and should have won a a few more. I I feel like that's got to weigh pretty heavily in Votto's favor here. And and I think it's probably enough to say that Votto stays ahead of Roland because of that, especially since they're pretty even now and Votto is still playing. So it's likely he pulls away from him a bit as well. I think we keep Votto where he is right now. I think that all adds up to Roland settling in nicely between Joey Votto and Ron Santo, which makes Scott Roland our number 15 on our list here. And I'd be interested. I'd love feedback from folks because, you know, obviously this list is a bit arbitrary. It's, it's, it's subjective. And you know, I never know if I've got a couple guys here. There's a little bit of a grouping here between, between Roland, Santo, and Kenny Lofton here at 15, 16, and 17 that are these like defensive studs who are good offensive players. Not great, but good, if not too above average. And absolutely elite defenders. Again, Lofton was one who's probably the best center fielder of his generation, if not one of the best ever. That Santo, you know, was one of the best third basemen of his generation. We just said the same thing about Roland. And I'd be curious how people feel about me heavily weighing defense when then you go down and Ortiz is down at 21, David Ortiz. Or Willie Stargell hit 475 home runs, and I've got him down at right above David Ortiz. So I'd be curious to know how people feel about that if I'm overweighting defense. But for right now, that's where my instincts go, is to give more weight, more value to that defense. So we are going to put in as our new number 15, Scott Rowland. All right, so that is our episode for this week. Thank you so much for joining us uh, and for listening. Remember, we are every week now on Fridays. We'll come out Fridays at noon Eastern time. I think next week, because I like to do, you know, kind of pairings and comparisons here. So we need a player to compare to Roland. And I think what we're going to do is actually find a modern comparison for, for Scott Roland. Because as I mentioned, one of the great things about Scott Roland is that he's opened up the door for so many players to potentially make the Hall of Fame uh, in terms of current players. I think this really makes things easier for Jose Ramirez somewhere down the line as a good example, for Manny Machado, for uh, for Evan Longoria. And I think it's going to make things a lot easier for a player who probably would have made it in his own, but this certainly makes it easier. And that's who we're going to talk about next week is Nolan Arenado. We'll do Nolan Arenado next week. Um, then the week after that, I think I'm going to do a Women in Baseball episode for Women's History Month. And I haven't figured out what we'll close the month out with. If I'm going to do a third part to this, I was thinking maybe like Manny Machado or something like that. But we'll see. I'll let you know when I know for sure what that episode is going to be. But I think, like I said, 
Next week, we'll do Nolan Arenado, and then a Women's History Month episode, and we'll go from there. Until then, you can reach me at Daniel J. Port on Twitter, or you can reach the podcast at LB Legacies on Twitter, and let us know how we're doing, or if there's someone you disagree with, or someone you'd rank differently, or if there's someone you want to hear me talk about. We'll make it happen. Until then, have a great weekend, everyone, and I'll see you next week. Thank you so much.